This is Sam Swartz and Rachel Fields with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The race for Wisconsin's U.S. Senate seat got a little smaller on Friday as Sarah Godlewski announced that she was dropping out of the race, reports the Associated Press. The announcement comes the same week as Outagamie County Executive Tom Nelson and Milwaukee Bucks Executive Alex Lazary both announced their departure from the race. All three of the frontrunners have gone on to endorse current Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, who is now almost assured to be the Democratic candidate going up against Ron Johnson later this November. The fall partisan primary takes place next Tuesday, August 9th. The State Department of Natural Resources released new administrative rules for PFAS chemicals today. The rules set regulatory standards for PFAS in both drinking and surface water here in Wisconsin. Under the new rules, any water source found to contain PFAS over 70 parts per trillion will be required to be treated by the municipality. Additionally, the rules codify an emergency rule that has been in effect since 2020, banning the use of firefighting foam that could contain PFAS chemicals, except in emergency situations. The new administrative rules go into effect today. A Dane County judge ruled today that former state Supreme Court Justice and 2020 elections investigator Michael Gableman must pay $163,000 in legal fees related to an open records case against him. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that Gableman was found to have violated the state's public records law by not responding to records requests from liberal watchdog group American Oversight. Today's ruling comes after a different Dane County judge ordered Assembly Speaker Robin Voss and the rest of the state assembly to pay almost $100,000 in attorney fees to American Oversight last week. That judge also ruled that the taxpayers will be on the hook for the $100,000. Today's judge did not rule if Gableman himself would have to pay the fees or if that too will fall to the taxpayers. Madison residents on the near east side could be experiencing lower water pressure for the next two months due to flushing of the water mains in the area. Residents may also see discoloration of their water while the flushing is taking place. The city water utility will put up signs when they are getting ready to work in a neighborhood, and you can receive weekly updates on the flushing project through the water utility's website. And now on to today's top stories. The two Republican frontrunners in the race for governor came to Dane County last week to talk with GOP voters. WORT producer Nate Weggehout went to the Pints and Politics event to learn more about the candidates. Two Republican frontrunners for governor spoke to voters last Thursday at a Pints and Politics event organized by the Dane County GOP. Tim Michaels and Rebecca Clayfish spoke at the Double Days Event Center and Sports Bar in Cottage Grove, where they attacked Governor Tony Evers, accused the 2020 presidential election of being rife with fraud, hit on all the current conservative talking points, and denied WORT's request for an interview. Michaels took the stage first before a crowd of around 100 people. Michaels, who is running as a political outsider, previously ran for U.S. Senate here in Wisconsin in 2004, where he lost to incumbent Russ Feingold. Michaels began his speech by explaining why he decided to run for governor. We said we can't take it anymore. There are so many people, these woke liberal left, that are taking us towards socialism, and it's cloaked. It's cloaked behind CRT and BLM and defund the police. But you know and I know what they really want. They want to tear down America as we know it. America, where the great American dream still lives. 
and we're going to do our part. My wife said, Tim, all it takes for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing. My wife thinks I'm a good man, by the way. Michaels then laid out his three key priorities he would address if elected. Everywhere I go, people say, Tim, was the election rigged? Was the election fixed? What are you going to do? I say to them, you darn right, I'm going to make it my number one priority. This is not going to happen again in Wisconsin under my administration. I'll tell you what, this is the United States of America. It's not some third world country. It's not some banana republic. United States of America, we should not be having questions about the election. I'm going to work with the legislature. I'm going to get those bills right, the bills that Tony Evers vetoed, and we are going to pass them. There'll be no more sucker bucks, no more out-of-state billionaires coming in here and taking control of our election process. Only 24 people in Wisconsin were charged with election fraud after the 2020 presidential election. Multiple recounts and court cases have affirmed that Joe Biden won the state of Wisconsin by around 21,000 votes. After saying he would end indefinitely confined status for voters, which allows voters with disabilities to receive absentee ballots, Michaels then shifted to his second priority, addressing crime. How did we get to this point in America where less police is better? Where cops are bad? What the heck happened there? I'll tell you what happened. Bad leadership with Joe Biden in Washington, D.C. and all those liberal people on his staff that are supporting the defund the police movement and trying to take down uh, law enforcement. Tony Evers, the same thing, coddling criminals and allowing these DAs to, to let these guys out uh, on a catch and release type basis. According to the State Department of Justice, crime in Wisconsin slightly fell from 2017 to 2021. Additionally, the city of Madison's current police department budget is around $84 million. After his speech came a short Q&A session. One woman asked for Michaels to come clean and clarify if he would decertify the 2020 presidential election. Here's what I do know. There was a lot of fraud in the election. Uh, there was a lot of stuff that happened that we have to make sure will never happen again. Here's what nobody in this room knows. Here's what Justice Gableman doesn't know. Here's what nobody in the legislature knows today. Today. Nobody knows how many fraudulent votes there were. All right? When I'm sworn in January, I will take all the information I have, and then I will make the proper decision at that time. After a short, self-described rant on the different controversies that have surrounded his campaign, where he reaffirmed that he does live in Wisconsin and has not been endorsed by the NRA, Michaels left the stage. Next up was Rebecca Clayfish, Clayfish who served as lieutenant governor during the Walker administration. Clayfish began by telling the audience why she is the best candidate to take on Governor Tony Evers in November. You guys probably have already seen that I'm the only one statistically who can beat him. I've had a 12-year-long record with the people of the oh, yeah. state. I love this state. I live in this state. My children go to school in this state, and I am the best person to stand on that debate stage with Tony Evers and take it to him because my two children were among those countless thousands locked out of their own classrooms by Governor Tony Evers. 
She then spoke about criminal justice reform here in Wisconsin. Clayfish told a story about going on a ride-along with the Milwaukee Police Department and talking with residents about what they want to see in Wisconsin. He said we do need a thousand more cops on the streets, as I have pledged to do. He said we do need bail and sentencing reform to tie the hands of bad district attorneys and bad judges who just let the bad guys go so the cops have to rearrest the same people every five days. He said we need that. After describing a grisly scene where she stumbled upon the aftermath of a shooting, Clayfish returned to her role as a parent and how that will influence her policy. I do it because I know that as governor I'll be able to sign the Parents' Bill of Rights where you will, as a mom and a dad, you will know what pronouns your child is trying to use at school. You will know what religion they say they are at school. You will know the curriculum they are being taught at schools, the surveys that they are being administered at school, the tests that they are given at school, and you will have the opportunity to opt out because you, as a parent, are a child's first teacher and not the other way around. After her speech, Clayfish also held a Q&A with the audience, who was much less receptive to her compared to Michael's. One of the first questions came from a former state employee who chastised Act 10 and asked whether Clayfish would expand Act 10. So I was a state worker too, and I would argue that as a state employee, but also a resident of the state, saving $15 billion is not hurtful. It's helpful. And so there is no plan to do additional iterations of Act 10 because, as we all saw this morning, our country dipped into recession. The time for raising taxes is not now when we're dipping into recession, guys. After another man spent several minutes yelling at Clayfish for not returning his calls while she was in office, Clayfish took a few more questions before leaving the stage. With the partisan primary only nine days away, national leadership is split on all the candidates. Donald Trump is endorsing Michaels, while Pence is endorsing Clayfish. According to the latest Marquette Law School poll, both candidates are neck and neck with 27% of voters supporting Michaels and 26% supporting Clayfish. The same poll shows Evers edging out both candidates in the November election. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. For two years, Madison's Police Civilian Oversight Board has been working towards naming the city's first independent police monitor. As WORT reporter Reed Kamai tells us, the, deci the decision could come by the end of this month. Madison could see finalists to fill the city's first independent police monitor position by the end of next week, and a decision on the final candidate could come as soon as this month. That comes after the Nascent Civilian Oversight Board has struggled to land on a candidate in its first two years of existence. The Independent Monitor is expected to work in tandem with the Civilian Oversight Board to investigate complaints, recommend policy changes, and engage the community. Importantly, the Monitor and the Board have the ability to subpoena the Madison Police Department. And according to a position description posted on the city's website, the Independent Monitor can make between $104,000 and $141,000 a year. That top figure is almost as much as the Wisconsin Attorney General's salary. But landing on the right person has been more difficult than expected, and has thrown off a timeline that originally predicted a hire in October of last year. Earlier this year, workplace allegations and licensing violations surrounded the board's previous final pick for the position, Byron Bishop, the city's civil rights administrator. Bishop later withdrew his candidacy, and the board restarted the hiring process. 
Since then, the board established a task force to review and revise hiring materials for the position. Last Thursday, the task force presented their selection process to the board. Shadira Kilfoy Flores is the chair of the task force. As she explained, the selection panel will hear initial interviews from a subset of the candidates before choosing four finalists. So at that time, we will choose four finalists, and then those four finalists will proceed to our town hall webinar, which will be on August 18th. And those same four finalists will then progress to our full board meeting on August 25th, where they will be interviewed by the full board. And then we will make a decision as to who our new IM will be. In a statement to WORT, Kilfoy Flores confirmed that 13 applicants remain in the running, and the board is slated to pick the four finalists by the end of next week. According to the board's timeline, recorded interviews with the top finalists and a town hall could come by mid-August, and a final decision could come as soon as the end of the month. The town hall is currently planned for Thursday, August 18th, from 5 to 8 p.m. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Reed Kantmai. Water is one of the most important resources Wisconsin has to offer, and safe drinking water is an issue that affects everyone in the state. Earlier today, the State Department of Natural Resources released their annual drinking water report, breaking down the current state of drinking water safety here in Wisconsin. WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke with Adam DeWeese, chief of the Bureau of Drinking and Groundwater with the DNR, about the report. So, Adam, pardon the pun here, but let's sort of jump right into this. What, Looking at this water quality report, what were you looking for? And then sort of going from there, what, what did you find? Sure. So every um, year, the um, public water um, section of the DNR uh, receives funding from a grant from the Environmental Protection Agency to do uh, work to uh, help uh, our public water systems across the state meet the Safe Drinking Water Act requirements. And Wisconsin is interesting. We have 11,500 public water systems, which is a little bit more than other states um, because essentially we live in a beautiful place where every time you put a, put a straw in the ground, you can get water. And public water systems, Nate, um, just for your, your listeners, are, are more than what most people think of public water systems are not just the the city that provides water to you know all the community but you know if you've got like a restaurant out in the um, country that provides water to its employees and its customers well that's considered a public water system and you know there are a lot of situations like that so we have more public water systems than any other state in the country um and we do a lot with very few people <laughs> to make sure that uh, folks are meeting the Safe Drinking Water Act requirements. And there's a lot of requirements uh, you can imagine. There are other, over 90 contaminants that have been identified by the federal government and uh, signed off on by our state government that have standards. Um, and you can think of things like bacteria. Uh, you know, you, you don't want to be drinking water with a lot of bacteria, so we help prevent that from happening, make sure folks are uh, having the proper safeguards and so forth to, to make that and do uh, the proper monitoring. And then uh, nitrate has been in the news a lot 
lately because you know we're a, a farming state. We have a lot of um, fertilizer and things like that to provide nitrate to the groundwater, um, and we, we monitor for that, and we monitor for other naturally occurring contaminants like arsenic and radium and things like that. And then, of course, pesticides. Um, and uh, Well, there's just a whole suite of contaminants that we monitor for to make sure everybody's safe when they, they drink the water. Um, and then uh, the other thing we do is we uh, have a series of inspections that happen uh, from our state inspectors. Uh, we perform about 2,500 uh, sanitary surveys a year, um, which are inspections of public water systems. We do some other sort of annual visits uh, to just check in on a, a larger group of, of systems. Um, and in those uh, instances, we're looking to make sure that there's uh, construction standards are being maintained, that there aren't any physical deterioration in the, the water systems, those types of things. Um, and then if we do find things, we want to make sure people correct the issues. Um, if we find contamination, we want to make sure that people are either installing new water uh, sources like wells or are um, installing treatment to remove those contaminants. Um, and while they're working on that, we want to let the public, well, public know what they have or will potentially be consuming. So we require public notices uh, of all of this. And then looking at the report, is that what you found? Is the water is the water looking good here in Wisconsin? Uh, what did you find? Yeah, it is. Um, you know, we tend to focus on the issues that um, at a small number of systems, right, that where we, you know, we find problems and then we really put our efforts into it. But, you know, if you look at the report, 98% of our systems are uh, meeting the, the health-based um, requirements. You know, there's only a small number that have, have found any real issues. And, you know, we get on those uh, pretty quickly and work with systems, and people tend to be very cooperative when you're talking about drinking water. You know, it's it's something everybody understands is important. So, um yeah, I, I think I'm very proud of the program, obviously, and the work that we do and the work that um, our other um, partners do. The people who provide the safe drinking water, right? The water providers do excellent work. Um, the Our rural water, uh, Wisconsin Rural Water Association, uh, you know, they help with a lot of education, outreach, and technical assistance. Our, uh, counties that um, we contract with to do some of the work at our smaller systems. Uh, you know, they're out there on the front lines working uh, to make sure all the uh, regulations are met and everybody is, is drinking safe water. We, I think um, I think the whole state can be very proud of the water resource that we have and the dedication that all the professionals around the state um, you know, provide to make sure that everybody's drinking safe water. And really that report does outline, um, you know, as you mentioned, the 
uh, all the work that we do, uh, if anybody's interested in understanding more about just the program, that is a really great report to read through because it provides a snapshot of a lot of the work that we do and any issues that we may have found and the work that's being done to to correct it. So 98% of the water looking pretty good, but there was a little bit, little bit of room for improvement there. What were some of the issues that you found around the state? Sure. Yeah, so some of the issues are not, you know, really the fault of the water systems, right? If you, um, you know, ge- geology plays a very large part into the uh, quality of the water. So if you're in an area where there might be a little bit of arsenic in the bedrock, um, you know, sometimes your only option is to provide treatment or to drill a well at a different depth that might not be in the area that would receive arsenic. So that would be one area where we might find something and we can correct the problem. Nitrate tends to be the biggest contaminant that we have out there. Obviously, it comes from a lot of sources. Um, agriculture does tend to be the biggest one, but, uh, you know, people can have failing septic systems, can provide nitrate as well. Um, and nitrate and bacteria do tend to be more more common um, when we sample for and we do detect them more often, and then we have to... Uh, correct them. Um, then there there are other violations that happen. Um, uh, some violations may be that um, there is a construction defect that might require some money to correct, and and not everybody has the money to to get on it right away. And then um, you know we'll issue a violation on that. We'll try to find funding for people, but. Um, there's something called, we call them treatment technique violations, which is kind of a weird way of saying it, but uh, that's another violation that we get um, where uh, some kind of construction defect may be occurring and we need to make sure that it's corrected on time. And um, other, you know, and then of course, um, lead is not, we don't see a lot of violations for lead. Lead is different in that it uh, it exists out there in pipes, and our sampling program um, is aimed at making sure that people are drinking water with lead under a certain level, be 15 parts per billion. Um, and uh, if you exceed that level, it's it's called an action level exceedance. And then we require some corrective actions after that. So that one's not a true violation. It's more of a looking for the worst case scenario. And if you find it, then you try to add some treatment that'll correct it. That's, you know, an area that's um, led is something that, you know, the whole country is dealing with. All right. Well, I've been talking with Adam DeWeese, uh, chief of the Bureau of Drinking and Groundwater over at the DNR. Uh, We've been talking about the drinking water report that was released by the DNR earlier today. And you can read the full report online over on the DNR's website. Adam, thank you so much again for coming on and talking with me here today. My pleasure. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of our show. 
Our faith communities heads to a local Catholic church to sit in on a sermon. The Past Isn't Past takes a trip to Disneyland to look back to when Yippies took over the park and two new movie reviews. On today's Our Faith Communities, feature producer David Ahrens heads to Christ on the Solid Rock Church to attend a sermon by Pastor Everett Mitchell and to learn more about the community created at the church. A few months ago, I visited Christ the Solid Rock Church on Buckeye Road. The pastor of Christ the Solid Rock is Reverend Everett Mitchell. Like many black pastors, Reverend Mitchell has a day job. Unlike most, Reverend Mitchell's day job is as a judge in the Dane County Court. He is also now a candidate for the state Supreme Court. Reverend Mitchell has been the pastor of the church for over 10 years. The service in this Black Baptist church is filled with a call and response from the congregation. The response to Reverend Mitchell's sermon is filled with simple amens, a call out from a member, and frequently applause. The sermon demands not only the audience's attention, but their participation. The service on this day began with a brief dance performance by young girls attending Sunday school. The congregation sang immediately before Reverend Mitchell's sermon. So this morning, if you will turn with me to Judges as we continue to talk about this season of what does it mean to rebuild you. And I'm going to keep going down this thing because I, I really am excited about what I believe God is putting in my heart to really touch us about the notion of rebuilding one another, but also being very intentional about building us together as a community, all right? And, you know, and so with the idea that if we're going to rebuild a church and community, we can't do it in isolation. We have to have a next to them mentality where we're committed to working with one another in order to build what it is God is calling us to do. Amen? Sometimes we want to work by ourselves in silos and work alone, but God says, no, there will be no rebuilding of the wall if we can't work together to do it together. All right? The second is that God gave us the idea of rebuilding our image. Reminding yourself that you are God made. When you are saying you're God made, that means that in Psalms 139, that you are marvelously and wonderfully made by God. That means you are wonderful and wonderfully made. That means you ought to walk around and think about yourself not as bad, ugly, sinner, dark. No, you ought to think about yourself as wonderful, right? Yeah. You ought to put on your name, pack names, yeah. sit on your car, yeah. put on your board at work, at, at home, wherever it is. Reminding yourself that when you look at yourself, wonderful, right? You are marvelous. Everything about you is marvelous. Everything about you is beautiful and is good. And then we talk about God rebuilding our sense of being shaped. Because remember that you are in God's hands. And sometimes we forget that God... And I remember when I got ready to close that sermon out, I told you, sometimes the reason why God has to take that stuff out of you is because when the fire comes, if you ain't been tested, you will burn up in the fire. So God is going to send us through some fire, some tests, some trials, some tribulations. And if you got that stuff still lingering in you, it'll break you apart because you will feel like you can't make it. But God says, I'm working you out so that you can withstand what I've got for coming for you in the future. But you got to get that stuff out of you first. Amen? Yeah. And then lastly, we talk about rebuilding that connection 
and that connection is that God loves you, and there's nothing in the world now or in the future that can separate you from God's love. Because when you remember that you have God's love as your motivation, as your strength, as your engine that's pushing you, then you remember that you're not walking around as normal, but that you're more than a conqueror, and you're more than a conqueror, that means you're a super. Y'all had me walk around here last week with a cape on my back, trying to tell you how super you're supposed to be. But I want you to understand that you still have the power to grow, right? 
Saturday, August 6th, is the anniversary of the Yippie invasion of Disneyland. The Yippies were an offshoot of the 60s free speech and anti-war movements. This was one of the more innovative spectacles protesting commercialization, conformity, and the Vietnam War. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. In the heydays of the free speech movement, a new counterculture spawned by the name of the Youth International Party, or Yippie for short. 
constantly challenging the status quo, the Yippies employed theatrical gestures such as street theaters and powwows to spread their message. This Saturday, August 6, marks the day in 1970 that the Yippies invaded Disneyland. Yippies is short for the Youth International Party, a loose coalition of anarchists, artists, and social dropouts calling for revolution. They were political pranksters. Yippies were founded in 1967 by Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman. The establishment didn't really know what to make of them. The more serious anti-war left saw them as occasional allies, but often as hard to deal with. But on this day, 300 hippies singing the Mickey Mouse Club song marched with the Disneyland band down the main street of the Magic Kingdom as part of National Yippie Day. 150 police in full riot gear from Anaheim and Fullerton had been waiting since the pre-dawn hours. The Yippies commandeered Captain Hook's pirate ship and climbed all over the rigging, then briefly taking over Tom Sawyer's island, upsetting Disney management. But the final straw came at nightfall when the Yippies descended on Main Street and marched on the Bank of America facility. There was a scuffle between a Yippie raising the marijuana flag and another park visitor. Management declared the Yippies were no longer welcome in the park and had to leave. The park was closed five hours early, with over 24,000 shocked park customers shown the gate and promised a full refund if they returned the next morning. Eventually, 26 hippies were arrested on mostly minor charges, but they had made their point and the front page of every major paper in North America and Europe the next day. Back then, Disneyland and its reactionary owner, Walt Disney, was the height of establishment kitsch and its cartoon characters, the subject of often sexualized ridicule. The Yippies, an offshoot of the free speech and anti-war movement, were always looking for public venues to stage political theater. At the 1968 Democratic Convention protest, they insisted a live pig, Pegasus, the immortal, was the Yippies' candidate for the presidential race of 1968. At the march on the Pentagon that same year, the Yippies threatened to levitate the Pentagon by performing an exorcism to expel the evil inside. But my favorite Yippie event occurred at Wall Street on August 24, 1967, with Hoffman, Rubin, and several anti-war activists in their favorite hippie garb. They went on a tour of the New York Stock Exchange and from the gallery through dollar bills onto the trading floor. Activists Bruce Dances were called. At first, people were stunned. They didn't know what was happening. They looked up, and when they saw money was being thrown at them, they started to cheer, and there was a big scramble for the dollars. Afterwards, they were immediately beset by reporters. Hoffman then burned a $5 bill to make his point. As another activist, Bruce Eric France, wrote, Abby believed it was more important to burn money than draft cards. To burn a draft card meant one refused to participate in the war. To burn money meant one refused to participate in society. Hoffman himself called it guerrilla theater. Showering money on Wall Street brokers was the TVH version of driving the money changers from the temple. Was it a threat to the empire? Two weeks after our band of mind terrorists raided the stock exchange, $20,000 was spent to enclose the gallery with bulletproof glass, Hoffman recalled. Other protesters claimed trading stopped for six minutes, costing millions in lost trading. Jonah Raskin, Hoffman's biographer, said, The stock exchange incident made New York and the whole nation sit up and take notice of Abby Hoffman. Back at Disneyland, management had just lifted restrictions on its dress code, formerly hippies had been turned away, making them a very tempting target for Hoffman and company. So in late June and early July, a flyer made the rounds calling for a yippie convention at Disneyland, a day-long international yippie powwow 
was lured with theatrical events like a Black Panther hot breakfast at Aunt Jemima's Pancake House and a women's liberation-inspired event where women yippies were to gather at Fantasyland to liberate Minnie Mouse. Many of the events were just a joke. The point was political theater on a grand scale. For Hoffman, the goal was to get people engaged and thinking about the society they lived in. In organizing a movement around art, we not only allowed people to participate without a sense of guilt, but also with a sense of engagement. Use of fun in struggle was a new notion. There is no incongruity in conducting serious business and having fun. And that is our story for today. For the past is the past, I'm Harry Richardson. contributor Harry Richardson is back with two new movie reviews. The first is an intriguing new docuseries on the small screen, D.B. Cooper, Where Are You? It follows the story of D.B. Cooper, who hijacked a commercial jet in 1971, harming no one, and jumping out of the plane in midair with $200,000 in cash. He was never found. The second film is a fun new animated feature on the big screen, DC League of Super Pets. The hijacker, carrying a briefcase which held explosives. He asks for $200,000 and four parachutes. Once his demands have been met, jumps out of a damn jet in the middle of the night. I mean, there's just something kind of bad about that. That was a clip from the trailer for D.B. Cooper, Where Are You? Directed by Marina Zenovich. Zenovich is a veteran director who gave us the frightening documentary Water and Power, a California heist, 2017, and the well-regarded Going Clear, Scientology and the Passion of Belief. 2015, among others. This was a pretty good four-part docuseries that just started playing on Netflix. The first episode lays the groundwork. The documentary is about the search for the mysterious man who on Thanksgiving Eve, November 24, 1971, hijacked a Northwest Orient flight from Portland to Seattle, usually a 37-minute flight. An ordinary-looking passenger in sunglasses and a dark suit handed a flight attendant, then called stewardesses, a note saying he had a bomb in his suitcase. He gave her a brief glimpse. She saw what looked like dynamite and a series of wires. Soon after, he demanded $200,000 in cash, about a million dollars in today's currency, and four parachutes. That last bit was the most calculating. It kept the authorities guessing about his intentions. Was he going to try to jump out of the plane with all or part of the crew? If he had asked for just one parachute, they might have been tempted to tamper with it, not particularly concerned about the hijacker's safety. The plane landed, the passengers got off, and the plane refueled. The parachutes and the money were delivered. By this time, it was a dark and stormy night. The hijacker told the pilot to fly as low as possible at 200 miles an hour. The pilots were apparently unaware the plane could move that slow and maintain a level flight. The four crew members were in the cockpit when they felt the pressure change in the cabin. The hijacker had jumped taking the money with him. They weren't quite sure where he had jumped in that rugged terrain and where, if he landed. No one has ever been sure. Did he land safely and escape? Or did he die in the attempt? No body or parachute was ever found. People quickly learned D.B. Cooper was the pseudonym and he became an instant folk hero. He had harmed no one, just the airline's finances, and apparently gotten away with it. He had stuck it to the man, 
said one man on the street interview from that period. The first episode laid this out in vivid detail that gives a real feel for the period and the place. Episode 2 sets out the case against the man who seems the most likely suspect, Robert Rackstraw. He attracts a crew led by author and TV producer Thomas Colbert. Colbert heads up a group made up of several former FBI and other retired criminal investigators. Rackstraw seems to check a lot of the boxes, a Vietnam vet with vast experience with parachuting with a hint of CIA asset. He fits the admittedly vague description and when they finally track him down, refuses to say he isn't D.B. Cooper. He was a drug-running, risk-taking fraudster in his younger days, but had lived quietly as an ordinary businessman for years. Episode 3 has a great title, Seeing Jesus in the Toast, where in the internet age everyone has a theory, one more wild than the next. Episode 4 shows a convention in Cooperland and speculates that perhaps D.B. Cooper, whose real pseudonym was Dan Cooper, the initial media reports got it wrong and the name stuck. Dan Cooper is the name of a fictional French-Canadian Air Force pilot comic book hero. So was D.B. Cooper Canadian? Sadly, Rockstraw has died and the FBI closed the case in 2016. Colbert and company are still getting a vast trove of files on the case from the FBI after an expensive FOIA case win, but it looks like we'll never know who D.B. Cooper really was, and maybe that's okay. Are you okay? My best friend is in danger, and you have to help me. You know what they say about dogs, don't you? Never feed us chocolate. We love unconditionally. We're just a bunch of shelter pets. But we're stronger than you think. And that was a clip from the trailer for the big screen animated feature, DC League of Super Pets, directed and co-written by Jared Stern. This was a fun family film, but the DC comic and movie fans would probably enjoy it the most. There are some fun visual and musical gags throughout the film, like the Jonah Hex-themed steakhouse in the downtown metropolis, and Crypto, voiced by Dwayne Johnson, singing of the love between him and Superman, voiced by John Krasinski, to a John Williams classic theme from the 1978 live-action Superman. There's also Luther, Mark Marin, complaining that he doesn't have any superpowers, a frequent theme in the old Superman comics. The various pets also have some comic book cred. All in all, a fun summer movie for kids and adults. Oh, and stay to the end of the credits for a fun teaser for an upcoming DC movie. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks so much for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your reporter tonight was Reed Kamai. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, David Ahrens, and Nicholas Leet for technical production. Victor Calzoni engineered this show. Nate Weggehout produced this newscast. And Shally Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night. Thank you.